You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, if you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and I'll make sure that you get one. Got somebody over here? Hold that hand up so they don't forget (laughs) where to go. Thank you. We got lots, so if anyone else needs one, we're happy to happy to give them out. Genesis chapter three. <clears throat> we're going to read the whole chapter. Word of God says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on my fellow sinners in this room. God, I pray that you would use your word to speak to us, and I pray that you would help us to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I find it very interesting that I don't often run into too many people who are neutral about snakes. Seems to be something about snakes that elicits a lot of emotion in people. You've got some people who are completely terrified by snakes. You've got people who loathe snakes, who are revolted by snakes. You have people who are fascinated by snakes. But most people don't have kind of just this take it or leave it attitude towards a snake. It's not like when they see a squirrel or when they see a sparrow. There's just this reaction that people have when they see a snake. I found it interesting that the, the magazine, the Atlantic Monthly, noted a, a study in the Journal of Psychological Science which suggested that humans have a, may have a built-in aversion to snakes and their hissing, slithering, menacing ways. Researchers at the University of Virginia, I thought this was interesting, they studied 120 preschool-aged children to gauge reactions to images of different things, including images of snakes. And the researchers were surprised to find that, that children, even those who had never had any previous exposure to a snake, they immediately identified the snake as threatening. The preschoolers didn't react this way when they saw pictures of frogs or pictures of caterpillars. But for whatever reason, they identify the snake as dangerous. There, there seemed to be this innate predisposition to see snakes as threatening. And, and, and there are some who pass this off as simply the result of evolution. But I like the question that, that Russell Moore raises in response to that. He says, what though if this loathing isn't at all evolutionary? What if it is the result of a cataclysmic event somewhere in the primeval past something still embedded in the human heart. And I think that's a much better explanation than evolutionary processes, especially since macroevolution, as posited by Darwinists, is a fable, and Genesis 3 is history. I think that cataclysmic is indeed an appropriate word to use to describe the events of Genesis 3, because what happens in this chapter turns the cosmos, turns the universe, turns the world upside down, and the reverberations from this event continue to be felt today. And today we are continuing our series that Pastor Steve and I have labeled the Jesus Tribe, and we are exploring one of the major storylines in the Bible, that being that God from the very beginning, even before the beginning, has purposed in his heart to have a people, a community, a tribe, if you will, set apart for himself for the glory of God. And there's three things that I I want to focus on this morning, that I want to bring our attention to this morning. One is that man is an image bearer meant to glorify God. Two, Satan hates the image of God and seeks to twist it. 
And number three, God will not be denied his glory. So let's look at the first one. <clears throat> and I keep hearing a rumbling or something when I talk. If there's something I need to do to, to change that, just, just let me know. First thing, man as an image bearer is, is meant to glorify God. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God created man in his image. Now, now what does that mean, to image God? It means to reflect God. It means to show something about God. One way I've tried to explain this to my own children is that you, you use a mirror. And you look in the mirror, and, and what do you see? You see a reflection. You see an image. What you see in the mirror is not really you per se. It is an image of you. It is reflecting back certain aspects of what you were like. And man is created to, in a sense, mirror back or reflect back certain aspects of God. And man has a very special place in creation because animals are not made in the image of God. Angels are not made in the image of God. And we have man who has this unique privilege and responsibility and honor above anything else in creation, and that is the privilege of being an image bearer. Now, why does God do this? Well, why does God do anything that he does? Ultimately, God's chief end in anything is to glorify God. God's chief end is to exalt God, to lift God's name up, to put himself on display. God is the only person in the universe that is allowed to be self-centered, that is supposed to be self-centered. Why? Because the most beautiful and wonderful and glorious thing in the universe is himself. And for God to make much of anything else, to put any, anything or anyone else at the center of his world would be a sin. It would be wrong. It would be idolatry. You are not at the center of God's universe. God is at the center of God's universe. And God loves himself more than he loves you. Now, I did not say that God does not love you. Don't walk out of here saying that Deemer said that God doesn't love me. God does love you. But what I'm saying is, is that God loves and treasures himself more than you. Understanding the premium of the supreme importance that God places on himself and on his glory is, will shed light on everything else that we see in the Bible. A passion for his own glory is the driving force behind everything that God does, including saving you. We all know that God saves sinners because he loves them. We, we know that. But what many of us don't realize is that he is also doing it to bring glory to himself. I think of the scripture that says, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I think of the book of Isaiah where God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. But, but, but I've, tried you, I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. And I would be remiss to say also that when God invites us, even commands and demands us, 
to exalt him, to honor him, to praise him, to lift him up above all things, that such beckoning is actually an act of love towards you. Because if God is truly loving, he will only give his people the very best thing. And what is the very best thing that God can give? If God's going to show his love to you, what is the very best gift that he can give? It's not health, wealth, or prosperity. The best gift that he can give you is himself. So his desire to be glorified, his desire to be put on display, to be seen as great, is also for our benefit and our enjoyment and our pleasure. Think about this. When you see something beautiful that just blows you away and just causes delight in your heart, maybe it's just this beautiful sunset or this awesome waterfall or I love when you get out of the city in, in Atlanta, you got to go far away to do this at night. <laughs> look up in the sky, look up in the heavens, and you just see this incredible display of just countless stars. And you're just blown away. And, and, and what do you do? You want it on display for others to see. You might, you might call your friends to come where you are, see this thing. You might get on the phone and verbally tell them and describe this beautiful, awesome thing that has caused such joy in your heart. You may take a picture of it so that in seeing the image of that glorious thing, others may at least get a glimpse of that thing. And that's exactly what God is doing in bringing attention to himself. He enjoys himself and his beauty and his glory, and he wants his people to enjoy it, to delight in it, to be captivated in it, to be awed by it, to take pleasure in that thing. And God has put his stamp uh, all over creation as a way of putting himself on display. That, that waterfall that you love does that to a point. There is something in that 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 glorifies God, that shows us something about God. Same thing with that sunset. Same thing with those stars in the sky. But God wanted to do something more. He wanted a picture. He wanted an image that the world would, uh, that would show even on a deeper level a glimpse, a reflection of himself, and that image is man. And if God's chief aim is to glorify himself, then it makes sense that he would create beings because they are that because they are in the image of God, that they are living and acting in a way that points towards God, that puts God on display. In fact, remember what God tells Adam and Eve to do, part of the mandate. He tells them not only to be fruitful and multiply, but what does he tell them to do after that? He tells them to fill the earth, to fill the earth. And, and as God's image is spreading out and filling the earth, as more and more people, after Adam and Eve, come on the planet, as as God's image is filling the earth. What is happening? What's happening is that the glory of God is filling the earth. In what specific ways does man image God? We're given clues early on in Genesis. When when God tells Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth and over the animals, they are meant to image the rule and the authority that God has over everything. When God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, it is an image pointing us to the fatherhood of God who seeks to have a multitude of spiritual sons and daughters that he is constantly adding to his family. The marriage relationship images God in the sense that you have two persons who are equal in worth, equal in value, equal in dominion. They share 
uh, dominion over the earth. They're, they're co-rulers in creation. And yet they are different from one another also at the same time. Not just biologically, but different in roles and in functions and in how they relate to one another. This image is the relationships within the Godhead. Because what do you have in the Godhead? You have persons who are co-equal, who are of equal worth and value and importance equal in deity, in authority, in essence, and yet in the Godhead we have three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are different in roles and different in functions and different in how they relate to one another. But in addition to the clues that we are given early on in Genesis, uh, man images God in so many other ways. We are to image God in how we live day by day. Our interaction with our children, for example, should, should show our children something that is true about God. How we interact with our neighbors should show them aspects of God's character, of God's ways. And as a matter of fact, I think we need to examine ourselves daily and ask ourselves How am I imaging God today? What am I doing in this situation that is imaging God? What am I doing that may not be properly imaging God? And when I frame my life in this way, it's a huge reality check because, man, it scares me to death because I drop the ball on a regular basis. I mean, just last night, I was praying with my son, and I was asking God to forgive me for for not imaging the fatherhood of God in a proper way to my kids. That's a huge weight on my shoulders because I know that how I live and how I interact with my children, it's supposed to point to God. It's supposed to point to His fatherhood, His loving, caring, holy fatherhood. And I mess that up so many times, so many times. Now the question may be asked, if I am in the image of God and if and, and, and Christ, as the Bible tells us later, is the image of God. Why am I so rotten and God is so good? It seems to me that that beautiful waterfall does a better job of displaying the glory of God than I do. It seems that that sunset does a better job of showing the world something about God than this old sinner does. So what's the problem? that takes us to Genesis 3, and we are introduced to a serpent. And that leads to my second point, that Satan hates the image of God and seeks to destroy it. In the Garden of Eden, we have man and woman. We have Adam and Eve. They are imaging God perfectly. They are individuals. uh, They as individuals are imaging things about God. Their marriage relationship is displaying truths about God. They are perfectly holy and righteous and good and loving, which, is, which are imaging things about God's character. Even their relationship to creation is saying something. You have Adam and Eve with complete authority over the animals and over the earth, so they are imaging the authority and dominion of God perfectly. And then we are introduced to this reptile, this snake, this serpent in Genesis 3. This serpent is later identified as the devil. Now, why is Satan doing this? Why is he coming against Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? It's not just that Satan is a bad guy. He is bad. He is evil. It's not just that Satan enjoys causing mischief, but I'm sure he does. It's not just that Satan hates people, although he does, but it's not primarily about man. When Satan looks at Adam and Eve, what does he see? He sees a reflection 
of God. He sees an image of God. Every time he sees a human, he is reminded of God. Satan is all about exalting himself, lifting his name up, being God himself. And the last thing he wants to see is a world full of mirrors reflecting back to him images of the person that he hates and despises more than anyone else. And so when the serpent is lashing out against Adam and Eve, it is ultimately an attack against God. And the serpent spins his web of deception. And as we read earlier, Adam and Eve fall for it. They eat the forbidden fruit. They sin against God and they become corrupt. And the image of God in them is corrupted. And what happens is is that they are still image bearers. The image of God in them is not destroyed, but it is warped. It is twisted. It is perverted. Going back to the mirror analogy, it would be like before the fall... You had this perfectly clean, shiny mirror, and when you looked in it, the image that you see is clear and representative of the person being reflected, but when sin comes into the picture, it would be like if you threw a bunch of mud on that mirror, and then you took a baseball bat, and you whacked that mirror real good a couple times, and so now there are cracks and there are dirt There's dirt and there are missing pieces of the mirror so that when you look at it, you see something vaguely familiar, but you can't quite make it all out. And what you see is not exactly you. Uh, It's kind of familiar, but but it's it's rather an imperfect and broken reflection and a broken misrepresentation of you. And this is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve and to you, and to me, and to all of humanity. We still bear God's image, but it is warped and it is perverted, which means we are giving warped and perverted and lying messages about God. We, we are that broken, muddy, dirty mirror imaging God wrongly and displaying a messed up picture of God. And we immediately see everything becoming warped and twisted just moments after Adam and Eve sin in the text. Immediately sin takes hold and everything changes. Perhaps one of the most significant perversions of this image is seen in the very first sin itself. I mean, what, what, why do Adam and Eve eat from the tree in the first place? I mean, did you catch that when we were reading Genesis 3? The reason why... What lie did the serpent feed them? You look at verse 5. It says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve did not eat from this tree because they were hungry. And remember, here's the, the, the sad irony of it all. Adam and Eve are already like God. They are made in God's image. The serpent is not. And so the temptation is in Adam and Eve reaching for something more, something greater. Really, it's a temptation to commit treason against God and exalt themselves above God. And that's the first perversion. Before Genesis 3, 
Adam and Eve image God in the sense that just like God, God was the center of their world. God was the center of their universe. They exalted God. They lifted God up. They worshiped God. But now in Genesis 3, it's the exact opposite. They are putting themselves at the center of their world. They are lifting themselves up. They are exalting themselves. They're exalting something above God. And every time you sin and every time I sin, we're doing the exact same thing. We are elevating ourselves above God, and instead of imaging God, we are actually imaging the serpent who is seeking to exalt himself above God and be God. But the corruption of God's image in man doesn't stop there. Not only do we have a creature exalting himself above his creator, we have other perversions. For example, Adam and Eve were given dominion and authority over the earth and over the animals. But in Genesis 3, who has the authority? Who's having the dominion? We see the serpent acting in authority and taking dominion over humans. And we see humans putting themselves under the leadership of an animal. We also see sin disrupting fellowship between God and man. The text says that Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they got some fig leaves to sew together to cover up their nakedness. And and when they heard God coming text says they hid themselves among the trees. And so we see this sense of shame that sin brings. And we see the beginnings of man's desire to run from God, to hide from God, to not want anything to do with God. We see the beginnings of man's attempt to cover his shame with his own works and in his own power. And we have billions upon billions upon billions of Adam's descendants today who are acting just like Adam. They feel the shame of their sin. They feel the guilt of their sin. And, they want, and yet they want nothing to do with the God who can take those things from them. Who can fix those things. Instead they run from God. And instead of making loincloths to cover their shame, they make false religions. They make false gods to appease, to, to appease the guilt that they're feeling inside. So they don't feel quite as guilty anymore. And in Genesis 3, we see the beginnings not only of man's uh, aversion to God, but also we see the beginnings of man's downright hostility towards God. When God confronts Adam about what happened, does Adam repent? Does he acknowledge his sin? God, I sinned. I have done wrong. I have transgressed. Please forgive me. Is that what Adam does? No. He instead shifts the blame. And who does he shift the blame to? Well, the obvious answer is he shifts it to the woman. And that's true. But that's not the only person that God is blaming. Look again at Genesis 3. That's not the only person that Adam is blaming. Look again at verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. There is a jab directed towards God in all of this as well. This is the woman's fault, God, and you gave her to me. Remember? Some helper, God, this was your idea, remember? It's her fault. And and this is the first sign of what we'll see more of later on in the scriptures, that man is in hostility towards God. That man hates God. That man is at war with God. Scripture says that this is true of all of us. 
The Bible says in Romans 8, 7, For the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not only does sin's corrupting influence disrupt man's relationship with God, but it also affects man's relationship with woman. Adam takes an implicit jab at God, but he makes a very explicit accusation towards the woman, as we just read. And this is huge. And a total perversion of what Adam was supposed to be as a husband. God created Adam to protect Eve, to provide for Eve, to lay down his life for Eve. This is the mandate and this is the charge for all husbands. And this loving, self-sacrificial life that husbands are meant to lead is meant to show us something about Jesus Christ, who loves his bride, the church, and who is willing to lay down his life to save his bride from death. But Adam is imaging a twisted, perverted, upside-down version of Jesus Christ. Instead of being willing to lay down his life for her, Adam puts Eve instead in the crosshairs. I want you to think about what Adam is doing here when he blames Eve and absolves himself. Think about this. What was the penalty for eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The penalty is death. So what is Adam saying between the lines? Adam is saying, if anyone is going to be put to death, kill her. She did it. It's her fault. And how opposite that is of Jesus Christ, who loves his bride, and instead of wishing her dead, actually saves her from death. Someone might say, well, didn't Adam kind of have a point in one way? I mean, Eve kind of initiated this whole thing, didn't she? I mean, chronologically, she ate of the fruit first. She took the lead in this rebellion. She talked to the serpent. She considered his arguments. She made a decision to go this way, and so she was the initiator of all of this, right? And to that, I would answer, yes. She was the initiator. She, did the, she took the lead in eating the fruit, and that's exactly the problem. That doesn't absolve Adam. That only makes him look worse. There's an often overlooked detail in verse 6. We know the serpent was there. We know Eve was there. But look at who else was there in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And we have here a role reversal between man and woman. Sin turns everything on its head. You have man seeking to exalt himself above God. You have humans under the dominion of animals. You have Eve being the initiator and the leader of the family. You have Adam submitting to Eve's leadership. Sin is perverting everything. It is twisting everything. It is turning everything upside down. And while Eve is guilty and is, held, is, is to be held accountable for her own sin, the Bible blames Adam for the worldwide consequences of sin, such as death and the imperfections of the creation as a whole. And this is because 
The husband is meant to be the head of the home, the spiritual leader of the family. And after Adam and Eve sin, who does God call out for? He doesn't come and he doesn't say, Eve, you sin first. What's going on? He doesn't say, hey, Adam and Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He comes after Adam. He holds Adam accountable for the breakdown in the family. He stands passively by while Eve is conversing with the serpent. And he, he passively lets her get close to the tree. And he passively lets her take the fruit and eat it. And he passively allows her to take the lead uh, by be- becoming the spiritual head of the, of the family. And he eats the fruit. Adam is imaging something that is the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. Jesus fights for his bride, and Jesus says an attack against my bride is an attack against me, and you have to go through me to get to my bride, the church. Jesus leads his bride away from sin. Jesus points his bride to God. Jesus points his bride to holiness. And what Adam should have done was was say, Eve... I love you too much to let you go down this road. Get away from that tree. Don't talk to that creature. Let me take care of this. And what Adam should have done is he should have gone over to that tree, grabbed the serpent, dragged him out of the tree, and crushed him under his feet. And one of the consequences for this sin in Genesis 3 is going to be a constant battle and struggle between the man and the woman that continues to this day. God tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. And this verse describes the ongoing conflict between men and women. The desire that the woman will have for her husband is a desire to control him, to lead him, to manipulate him, to get him to serve her. And the ruling that the husband does over the wife is not a kind of is not a kind, loving, Christ-like authority and leadership. Rather here, it is referring to a dominating, aggressive, sinful control. And this fighting, this antagonism, this jockeying for power and control between husbands and wives is yet another example of how sin is twisting the image of God in man. The relationships between the members of the Trinity is nothing like this. You don't have the son trying to one-up the father. And you don't have the father trying to domineer and abuse the son. And you don't have the spirit trying to manipulate the others. That's not what's going on in the Godhead. And so now Adam and Eve's marriage and their relationship to one another is giving a lying image, a twisted, perverted image of God. And not only do we see sin disrupting fellowship between man and God and man and woman, but we also see disruption in man's relationship to the very earth itself, to the created order. It's interesting that part of the curse that God pronounces at the end of Genesis 3 is that even though man is supposed to have dominion and authority over the earth, even the earth now will resist this dominion. Verse 17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And what is the end result of all this rebellion, all this sin, 
all this warping of relationships, the end result is death. When God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, he wasn't kidding. We see death all over Genesis 3. Death and the relationship between God and man, between man and woman. At the end of God's terrible pronouncement of judgment, what does he say to Adam? He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. And beyond that, the Bible later explains that man is in a state of spiritual death, where they are out of fellowship with God, and that spiritual death is climaxed in hell. What we are seeing in the consequences and the judgment that God renders due to Uh, that renders uh, due to sin is uncreation. Uncreation is the consequence and the judgment that God meets out. What I mean is that in Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation happening. We see man being created from the dust of the ground and having a vibrant physical and spiritual life with God. We see the creation of the first human community with Adam and Eve, where they are living in peace and harmony, imaging God perfectly. Man is in paradise with God. But the judgment for sin is the opposite. We had creation in the beginning. The judgment for sin is uncreation. We see the good things that were created being reversed and undone. Man man passes from spiritual life to spiritual death. The image of God in man moves from perfection to perversion. There is a breakdown in relationships between man and woman. And if man was created from the dust of the ground, then uncreation will be man returning to the dust. Instead of man being destined for the pleasures of paradise with God, man is on the road to the torments of hell without God. Everything becomes backwards and upside down. And Genesis 3 is almost entirely bleak. And depressing. Almost entirely. But not totally. And that brings me to the final point. Is that God will not be denied his glory. This takes us to one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. God turns to the serpent. And he says... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head. I love that one. I like that one better. Crushing. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That verse is a word of hope to Adam and Eve and it is a declaration of war to the serpent. God is going to fight for his glory and he's going to fight for his people and he's going to crush the serpent. A lot of people call Genesis 3.15 the proto-evangelium or the, the first gospel, the first hints of the gospel in the Bible. When God says there will be hostility or enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, God's not saying that Eve's descendants are going to have this hatred of reptiles, even though many of them do, according to that one psychological study. But remember who the serpent is. The serpent is Satan. 
and the seed or the descendants of the woman are those who will love God, are those who will follow God. They are God's people. And the seed or descendants of the serpent are those who reject God, Satan's people. And God is saying that there's going to be an ongoing struggle between the people of God and the people of the serpent. And the ongoing struggle is, is an ongoing struggle between good and evil that is happening throughout history. And then God does something interesting in this Genesis 3.15 pronouncement. God shifts from the plural to the singular. Okay, at first he, he was talking plural. He's talking about two groups of people. God's people and Satan's people. But then he shifts from the plural and moves to the singular. And he says, he will strike or crush your head and you will bruise his heel. What's God talking about here? God is preaching the gospel. God is telling the serpent that one day a descendant of Eve is going to come, and that serpent's going to bruise him a little, but this descendant of Eve is going to crush the devil. God is promising to Adam, to Eve, and to the devil that a Savior is coming into the world. Now why does God do this? He does it because he loves us. He does it because justice must be done. And most importantly, he does it to bring glory to himself. You see, the problem in a post-Genesis 3 world is not that man no longer bears God's image. The problem is that man, who still represents God, bears that image in a perverted way, misrepresenting and dishonoring God. The other problem is that God's image is still filling the earth. But instead of filling the earth with God's righteous glory, sinful mankind is filling the earth with a perversion of God's image, lying about God and defaming God. And if God's chief aim and desire is to bring glory to himself, then then the most evil thing that anyone can do is to attempt to deny God the glory that he is due. And nothing is more important than God vindicating his righteous glory by punishing sin and destroying those who bear it. But not only will God vindicate his glory by destroying sinners, he will also vindicate his glory by restoring sinners. Certainly God would be just in destroying everybody, wouldn't he? Sure he would. He would be right to do that. But God will not destroy all sinners. God still desires to fill the earth with his glory, and he desires to do this through a people, a tribe, a community that is set apart for himself. And that's all well and good, but you still have the problem of people bearing a twisted image of God. What do you do about that? That problem has to be solved. And that problem is solved by God's provision of his son as a propitiation, a substitute. And Jesus becomes the substituted focus of God's wrath. Romans 3.25 and 26 says, God made Jesus' propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So Jesus becomes a substitute. He takes the punishment that sinners deserve. And so what you have is, you have Adam. He was man's first representative. 
And then you have Jesus, who is man's final representative. And you can be either in Adam or in Christ. Now, you are automatically in Adam just by being human, (laughs) by being born into this world. You become in Christ through faith in him. And so if judgment is uncreation, then what is redemption? What What is salvation from judgment? Recreation. If judgment is uncreation, salvation from judgment requires recreation. This is the teaching of Jesus who tells us that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Or you have Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 encouraging Christians to live with newness of life based on the creative work of God in them. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And just as God used his word to create humanity, right? God speaks and it happens. We see that in Genesis. Just as God used his word to create humanity, we must be recreated by God's incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And once we are united to Christ through faith, we can know and be confident in the fact that Jesus is the propitiation, is the substitute for our sins. If he's my substitute... That means on the cross, he bore my sins. And if he bore my sins, he received the punishment for them. And he died for them. And if he died for them, then I don't have to die. If he bore God's wrath for me, I don't have to bear it myself in hell. And if my sins have been removed in such a way that I have been forgiven by God, and my relationship with God has been restored, has been renewed. And if I and you are united to Christ, joined to Christ by faith, then not only does his sin-bearing death on the cross apply to you, but so does his life. And that is where recreation happens. God is not only interested in recreating sinners and conforming them back to his perfect image, he is also interested in recreating the earth and renewing the earth and restoring the cosmos. The scripture points us to a new heaven and a new earth to come. Paradise lost in Genesis becomes paradise restored in Revelation. And the scripture says that all of creation groans together in pains of childbirth, longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption and awaiting freedom. All of creation waits for redemption. And just as, just as man, a, a man was the gatekeeper to corruption entering the world, so it is through a man that all things will be renewed and restored to their perfect state. That man, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. He, too, was tempted by the devil. But where Adam failed, Jesus won. And just as all mankind fell with Adam and was condemned to death and hell, so shall all who believe in Jesus be transferred, so to speak, from being in Adam to being in Christ. And while Adam failed to protect his bride from the serpent, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, crushes the serpent under his feet to gain a bride for himself. The death and resurrection of Christ is the serpent-crushing blow that God promised in Genesis 3.15. And that blow paved the way for the image of God to be restored in all who are in Christ. Because of what he has done, the process of of recreation is not something that we are waiting to begin. 
If you're in Christ, you're already being renewed and recreated. And that process is climaxed when we are perfected in the age to come. Scripture says that outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly, inwardly we're being renewed and transformed day by day by day by day. And even these bodies that are wasting away, one day these too will be restored in the age to come and perfected and uncorrupted and untainted by sin. Scripture says in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is your destiny if you are in Christ. To be conformed to the image of His Son. God's purpose for redeemed sinners is that they may be made to look like Christ. I'm almost done. So what, what is the ultimate end and purpose in all this? It is to glorify God. Here we are again. It's to glorify God. Salvation is not simply about saving my sorry soul from hell. There is so much more to salvation and redemption than that. God did not save you only to leave you as you are. There is no glory to God in that. God saves you with the purpose of working change and transformation and renewal of God's image in you. This is why I get very afraid for a person who has sat in church for years and they're exactly the same now as they were when they professed Christ years ago. And there's no change. There's no growth. There's no transformation. There's no sign, there's no sign whatsoever of any kind of conformity to the image of Christ. This is why Scripture challenges us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. And so I ask you, is there evidence of this image-restoring process in you? I didn't ask if you were perfect. You may have sinned on the way to church this morning. That's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, is there evidence of this transforming process, this renewal in you that you are being conformed to the image of Christ. And if you take an honest look and you say, no, I really don't see that. I've been in church for a long time, but I don't see anything. If that's you, can we talk after the service? I'd love to talk to you about that. Can we take a closer look at that together and, and talk and search the scriptures together? I mean, it, it could be perhaps you are actually still in a state of death and have not yet received the renewing life of Christ. And I think about the rest of us who are saved, who are born again, and there has been evidence of change and growth to the glory of God. And yet, if you're like me, man, you are still frustrated because I don't know about you, but sometimes this process is just taking way too slow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, look, I've been a Christian for a long time, I, since 1991. And I, I look and I see changes. I see growth. I see evidence that God's been doing stuff. And that's cool, and I praise God for that. But man, 
I'm like, God, can't you just speed this up a little bit? And I say that after I yell at my kids in sinful anger. Or I just, I treat one of you bad. And I just, I just come to God. I'm like, can, can we just speed this up? And, 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 and if, if you share that frustration with me, I'd ask this morning and in response to all of this that, that you would join me in, in, in pleading with God for more change, for more growth, for more transformation, that, that, that God would break our hearts even more and continue to reveal to us areas of our life, blind spots, areas that we still are showing a twisted, perverted image of God. And we've all got them. And we know about some of them, and other ones are blind spots. And maybe God needs to help us by sending someone into our life to lovingly point those things out. I, I don't know. But I, I, I hope that you will join me in praying that God would continue in this renewing process and that we would not resist God, that we would not kick against the goads. You know, we will ultimately receive this perfection in heaven. It's not going to happen here. It is an ongoing process, but, but I don't think we're supposed to just sit on our laurels and say, well, we'll be perfect in heaven, so who cares what I do today? I think we're missing out on so much that God has for us if we have that kind of attitude. See, a lot of times when we think about salvation, we think about getting fire insurance. In other words, we think about, well, we're going to heaven and not to hell. (laughs) And our theology of redemption stops there. I'm on my way to heaven, and that's it. And yet there is so much more to redemption than getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. Remember, it's not all about you. It's all about Him. It's about glorifying Him. And it's all about saving you with the purpose of fixing that broken mirror and cleaning it up putting the pieces back together, restoring the image of God in you that's been tainted by sin. And as time goes on, you are meant to look more and more like his son, which brings more and more glory to him. In heaven, it's going to be something like a hall of mirrors, not reflecting how great you are, but showing forth God's image and God's likeness forever and ever for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for not perfectly bearing your image and sinning against you and rebelling against you and falling down time and time again. It's frustrating, God. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us those areas that need additional growth Additional change. God, there are some people in this room that are genuinely Christians. They are genuinely saved. But they are struggling with a lot of tough sins. Some people in this room that deal with anger. Sinful anger. Lashing out against their family or their kids. That shows twisted images of God. There are other people that struggle with other sins, Lord. I pray that you would penetrate the hearts of everyone in this room this morning and humble us, Lord. Show us how good you are and how broken we are and how much in need of help we are. And God, thank you so much that you did not save us just to leave us as we are. That would not be love. 
That would be horrible, God. It's exactly why God barred Adam and Eve from the tree of life and kicked them out of the garden so they just wouldn't live forever and ever, thousands and thousands of years in a state of sin. That's not your desire for your people. Your desire for your people, God, is to change them, to bring them back to you, and to reflect you, God. I pray that we would not resist the work of the Spirit, and that we would cooperate with what you're doing in our hearts, and that you would continue to give us a hatred of sin and a love for you. I pray for anybody in this room that perhaps that image restoring process has not yet begun, and they are not genuinely saved. They might be churchgoers, they might read their Bible sometimes, but they haven't crossed over from death to life. I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that the work of renewal, true renewal, would begin today. God, thank you for who you are. You are so awesome and great and glorious and beautiful, God. And I pray that you would help us to see that, recognize that, acknowledge that, and enjoy that more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.